0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof podcast, episode number 70, Jason Chin, Why Open Science Matters to Fact-Finding in Courts. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Jason Chin. Jason is a lecturer at the T.C. Burney School of Law and an affiliate lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland in Australia. He will be joining the faculty at the University of Sydney, this summer. Jason teaches evidence and trusts, and his scholarship focuses on expert evidence as well as the law of trusts, taking a psychology and law perspective. Jason is also a strong proponent of open and reproducible scientific methods. Our podcast today features Jason's new article, Improving Expert Evidence, the Role of Open Science and Transparency, which is co-authored with Bethany Groans and David Meller and is forthcoming in the Ottawa Law Review. In it, Jason considers the parallels between the open science movement, which was spurred by the crisis of replicability in science, and the problem of unreliable expert evidence in the legal system. Jason argues that both problems arise from similar or analogous causes, and that the legal system can help tackle its expert evidence problem by embracing the principles of the open science movement. Jason, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you, and thanks for having me, Ed. Your article revolves around the open science movement. For those of us who are less acquainted with the open science movement, can you take a few minutes to just introduce it to us and to talk about what led to its formation?
1: Sure. I think there have generally been two thrusts to this movement. The first is a bit more historic, and it has to do with the democratization of knowledge. For a long time still, a lot of research articles exist behind paywalls due to the academic publishing system. and Some folks find that to be quite unfair because a lot of times this research is conducted at public universities and paid for through public money. And that's related, but not exactly the same thing to what we focus on in the paper, which is this rise in meta scientific research about how science and really any research ought to be conducted. Most of these studies find that research ought to be conducted more transparently. Because there's for a long time been a lot of undisclosed flexibility in the research process that lets researchers present their conclusions in a way that can make anything seem like a new and fascinating pattern. These include things like having two measurements for one phenomenon, but only reporting the measurement that works, adding more observations after you look at the data, dropping data points, calling them outliers in an ad hoc way that you wouldn't have used before you had seen the data this actually converges with a lot of similar stuff going on in other areas of scholarship, not just meta-science. So we're seeing some forensic science labs move to more extreme transparency in their procedures. I think it converges quite nicely with an argument that you and Alex Nunn have made about uh, once you conceive of expert evidence as a procedure, you become much more interested in transparency, how it was conducted. Was peer review done in a way in which it actually could find flaws in this work?
0: And just to be clear, what was going on was because there was flexibility and the ability to report certain results and not other results, you then had a lack of replicability between studies. When someone came by later on and tried to replicate the study, they wouldn't make the same choices and therefore they wouldn't get the same results.
1: Yeah, I think I would generally agree with that. There's just so much discretion in the system that you couldn't do exactly what they had done before. And the results were initially presented in a somewhat misleading way because all of those choices happened behind the scenes.
0: And what kind of reforms did the scientific community
1: impose to address that problem? So some of this has been going on. Probably the most mature field in this is clinical medical research, which once the research goes to actually testing the drugs on people versus the preclinical research that would look at this in the lab and in animal models, that is still a bit of the Wild West. And we're seeing that studies in those areas are reproducible in about only 30 to 60% of cases. But in the more rigorous field of clinical medical research, they imposed in many jurisdictions pre-registering your, your methodology, your analysis plan, and your hypotheses. So you'll put in some sort of public form the exactly how you plan to do your research, how many observations you'll do, how you plan to analyze it. Then afterwards, maybe you will change that after you see the data because something happened that you couldn't predict, but at least you can go back and look at that and see exactly what you changed and maybe scrutinize why you changed that, and perhaps you can then do a replication of that based on your new procedure, because there's always always a risk that you were biased, that you saw the results and you wanted to find something publishable, so you did that little tweak afterwards because you wanted to make them seem more exciting or novel.
0: You had earlier suggested that this replicability problem in science has a bunch in common with problems in law about forensic science or maybe experts generally. How and why did you make that connection?
1: So I think this started for me about 5 years ago when I was still in law school, but you know, we learned about the Daubert test. This is a paper that was written in the context of Canadian expert evidence law, but it's very similar, and they adopted the Daubert test in, I think, about 2000. So yeah, I looked at those criteria, you know, testing, error rates, peer review and publication. And I said, these have all been changing drastically. And we've actually learned that they don't really work as well as they should. And this is actually a sort of a long-standing critique of Daubert, which I'm sure you're aware of from folks in the science and technology studies like Simon Cole would say maybe that Daubert represents a mythologized view of science, that it's contained human bias in a way that just isn't true because science is a human endeavor. But I think the tweaks that this open science and reproducibility movement are doing is that they're showing more precisely how those scientific processes have been subverted and maybe a better way to employ those scientific structures.
0: Let me push you on this analogy a little bit. Sure. I mean, in a sense, one could read you as saying that the problems in forensic science are the same as the ones that led to the replicability crisis in science writ large, but surely that's not right. It seems to me that we have something of a spectrum. At the bottom, you have some of these forms of forensic science, which at times are purely subjective and lack any kind of objective criteria. And then in the civil context, it's even worse, potentially, where you have paid experts who are selected for their various positions. Then you can move Down the spectrum, and maybe you get to the replicability crisis, which is caused by things like selection bias and scientists who are trying to impose some kind of objective criteria but are not self-reflective and don't realize that there's flexibility in their choices. And then finally, I think you get to the idealized version of science, which is the open science movement, where you have both objective criteria and then you have transparency and pre-registration. Perhaps to me, it seems like they're all on the same spectrum, but they are not the same problem. Do I have that right or am I missing something?
1: I think that's a great analysis. I do agree with that. I think it's useful to... I think some of the work I'm trying to do makes it clear what that spectrum is. And I do think it would maybe say that for the more pre-scientific fields that you were discussing, it's sort of interesting that quite analogous things happen. So something's purely subjective, like maybe say fingerprints, they've been kind of validated and there are proficiency tests that seem to work. But you know, a very similar thing still happens in which the examiner will mark up the print with the minutiae that he or she thinks is important. And because that's not pre-registered, they can go back and say, actually, I didn't think those were important after all. So I think it makes some of the analogies clearer, but yes, I I think there is a spectrum there.
0: Let me push forward in your article. Your article then draws a number of what you term parallel challenges between science on the one hand and evidence law on the other. Now, we don't have time to get into all of those challenges, but give us some highlights of those challenges.
1: Sure. Again, this is back to the spectrum and the analogy, but in both fields, I think forensic scientists and court practicing experts would also want to try to control cognitive bias in a similar way that I think they wouldn't necessarily invite that though they've been accused of, of not doing as much as they should. And similarly, I think that scientists, we've kind of talked about this, have also endeavored to control cognitive bias, but in both ways, I think they've underestimated the ability of their structures to control that. And I think the analogy in science is all of these questionable research practices that I mentioned, like being able to go back in an ad hoc way and exclude data points. There simply wasn't enough structure and there wasn't enough transparency to make that clear. And we see that in both in both fields.
0: So what can the legal system learn from the open science movement? I think the thing that comes to mind immediately is transparency, but for the last 25 years now we've been focused on Daubert, which is not really about transparency. Would it be fair to say that Daubert gatekeeping has it wrong and that really what we should be doing is focusing on something else, or is it something more complicated than that?
1: I think there are a lot of lessons that can be learned. I would think that maybe Daubert should be applied with a open scientific gloss in a way like when we see courts adding additional indicia to uh, Daubert all the time so was the science generated in light of litigation or was it pre-litigation yeah i think some of those miss the point in that we ought to be asking i think was the science conducted in a transparent way and that might apply for the basic research, but I think you can also look at that in how the science has been applied. So I guess one idea, taking this idea from science that I talked about called pre-registration, I think it wouldn't be a far leap to say to an expert witness, before you look at these case-specific facts, we want you to tell us what your analysis plan is. We want you to tell us what a blood spatter, for instance, in a case like this would mean. That way that expert can't go and look at any blood spatter and say this means there was a head wound because it's very easy to do that after the fact as we've seen in science itself. So both for the basic research and the applied research, I think there are correlates. I think one final thing I would add, or not one final thing, but one additional thing, is I think we need very wide, and this is probably depend on what jurisdiction you're in, wide discovery rights. Because as we've seen, it's very easy for one party to think something is not worth disclosing, like the scientists often did, when in fact, if you look at it in a different light, it, it cuts right to the heart of the validity of what you're saying.
0: Okay, so I'd like to take the discovery piece, which I think is very valuable and certainly something that I support, and put it to the side for a minute. And I want to focus back on your discussion about adding transparency or considerations of transparency to the Daubert analysis. And I want to operationalize it. So what does this mean for a Daubert type test? So in the US, for example, does this mean that if you do not pre-register and you do not have that open data aspect to your study, does that mean that that now becomes grounds for exclusion? Or does it get put into the blender with all the rest of the factors that we're
1: talking about in Daubert? So that's a difficult question fundamentally, because I think that's a discussion that kind of transcends the open science stuff. But I've often argued in other scholarship that Daubert should be, or considerations like Daubert, should be applied somewhat contextually. Because if you are, let's say, a large corporate defendant, you're going to have more access to data and more access to this kind of research. So it's going to be easier for you to make that sort of argument. If you're a criminally accused party, there becomes challenges. I think I would probably say, if those are the two choices, probably the blender. I think at the very least, it's useful to have that in the arsenal. And it's useful to have that as an indicator of what is reliable research. But as a complete bar on calling the evidence or tendering the evidence or not, I'm not sure I would go that far.
0: Let me take a different swipe at this. If it's going to be contextual, does it then matter what field we're talking about? as you suggested, certain clinical or clinical medical studies have moved to this idea of pre-registration. And so in those contexts, if you do not pre-register, you no longer look like good science in that field, because the field has moved on or has progressed. What about fields where there hasn't been this progression, that it's rather cutting edge to engage in the pre-registration? Does it count more or less in those cases?
1: Well, I think one of the benefits of this way of thinking is that a lot of these methods aren't necessarily about scientific testing. So in the article, we talk about a gang researcher who was a sociologist, didn't really purport to do empirical research for the most part. But he was still essentially collecting data points. He was doing interviews with gang members and drawing inferences from that. And as we discussed in the article, he was doing that in a very non-transparent way that let him portray his conclusions in a misleading manner. So I think part of the benefit of this in science, law aside for a second, or in any research, is that a lot of these open reforms cut across fields. So they're useful in that way. And the other question you're asking is, since some of these have not reached the orthodoxy, since they are not necessarily best practices or considered best practices or considered generally accepted practices in the field, does the failure to do that give them less credibility? It's tough to say. I think it would certainly help to know that these fines are credible if they were done openly they would make it easier to assess. But if this is the best work that you have in the field now, it might be more of a matter of weight, I would say. But it's again, it might be a bit contextual.
0: Yeah. So the reason why I ask this is that I think it's an easy sell for you to say, transparency has become the standard practice in this field. And you, the expert, have not engaged in these standard practices. And the result is we're going to exclude you because you are no longer, and I go back to the original way that Daubert heard, which is that it was a derivative of the definition of scientific knowledge. The argument is that you have not produced scientific knowledge because you're not behaving like the scientific community. That, I think, is an easier case than saying, We've now set up that from an epistemic perspective, you should always have transparency and your field doesn't engage in this transparency. And now we're going to ding you as an entire field, for not doing this, and that the legal system is going to now place incentives on entire fields of knowledge that they should get their act together and impose the transparency. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at with that question. How far are you willing to take this? Is it just an observation that certain places have gone transparent, or is it that really we should encourage everybody to move
1: in this direction? I hate to keep coming back to this, but so, I think let's say there's two relatively well-heeled parties, they both have experts, and one is citing research that was very transparently conducted, it was pre-registered, that the data is open for other scientists to scrutinize. I think in that case, it might be fine for that to be a matter of weight, and you might give more weight to the more transparently conducted research. However, if this is a field of forensic science or forensic scientific practice, and there's just one expert, on for the prosecution, and they're talking about some practice they developed, and it was conducted in a very opaque way, and it was peer-reviewed and published, but there was a lot of possibilities for some of these questionable research practices to come in. Then I'm a little more sympathetic to the notion of excluding that, because We just really have no notion of how reliable it is, and I kind of like the idea of the court maybe saying, hey, go back and do some transparent research, and maybe you can start giving evidence.
0: Final question for you. Where should this analogy to the open science movement go next? Are there follow-up projects that you're currently working on? Are there places that you'd like to see other people take up this project for
1: themselves? Well, I had one idea that I thought you might be interested in, actually. And I think there are lots of threads to pull on here. But how about how this would be applied to legal scholarship? So a lot of journals, a lot of the many, many law journals from time to time publish behavioral or empirical research. And in science, there are, there are these new transparency and openness guidelines that some journals are adopting. But The way I see the law journals is they're actually quite diverse, and how do we ensure that they're doing the best empirical and behavioral research? It seems like we might need some sort of standards for them because maybe once a year, once every three or four years, they'll publish an empirical paper. Very hard to improve the knowledge in that area, in that field, if they're just doing that a few times a year. It's harder to impose those guidelines, I would guess. And then I was kind of thinking that within legal scholarship itself, we have a lot of degrees of freedom in what cases we cite. So it'd be nice to have more guidelines or rules about if we're actually citing the representative cases or if we're just cherry picking the ones that kind of fit our theory.
0: So fair enough point, I think. There are a number of law journals that have some transparency requirements. They certainly don't have pre-registration as far as I know. But There are some journals that require that you make the data available for inspection or if they want for you to put it up on their website. Your last question about cherry picking is very interesting. It goes to the heart of what legal scholarship is. To the extent that legal scholarship is empirical and we're trying to make claims about the way that the world is, I think all of these concerns are correct. On the other hand, there are parts of legal scholarship that are normative, and there I think cherry picking is kind of the soup du jour, right? That's exactly what the various scholars are doing, are picking places to hang their hat and trying to show you where various precedent can be used to serve their purposes. Well, Jason, thanks for taking the time to introduce us to the replicability problem and the open science movement and for helping us think about its implications for expert testimony. Great having you on the show.
1: My pleasure. Thanks.
0: At first glance, the replicability crisis in science couldn't seem more different than the problem that we face with expert evidence in the law. After all, the replicability crisis was a problem within science itself. With expert evidence, we're still trying to figure out what the science is. But the clever insight in Jason's paper is that these two things really emerge from the same problem. Or at least part of the problem with expert evidence is the same as the replicability problem. Perhaps they are different points along a spectrum, but the linkage is there. One of the problems with forensics is that subjective determinations are flexible. And this flexibility makes it hard to determine error rates and to control for examiner bias. The same goes for replicability. The replicability crisis arose because despite scientific norms of objectivity, researchers still had enough wiggle room to allow expectation bias to contaminate their studies. So the insight is, I think, illuminating. The difficulty, though, remains in operationalizing it, which led to my later discussion with Jason. What does a lack of pre-registration or a lack of transparency mean for scientific admissibility? Here I think there are three approaches. The most lax approach is merely to say that the lack of openness should be an element considered by the jury teach lawyers about the importance of transparency, and let them use it as a weapon in cross-examination. The middle ground is to work openness into the factors used in gatekeeping when the underlying field has adopted such norms. If your field has adopted transparency norms and an expert violates those norms, then perhaps that expert's testimony doesn't really qualify as scientific knowledge. This position is a pretty easy pill to swallow. It continues to allow the scientific community to define what science is. The strictest approach is to lead from the front. Simply demand transparency, or perhaps demand it subject to the resource considerations that Jason noted. It doesn't matter if the underlying field doesn't have transparency norms. We as the legal system should demand it anyway. All of these approaches will arguably lead to better outcomes, but which one you choose likely has much to do with your view on the proper role of the judge and frankly the proper role of the legal system in improving the evidence heard by juries. I'll be curious to see how things play out in practice. And with that, we come to the end of another season of Excited Utterance. As always, I want to thank all of you for your valued support. Alex Nunn will return this summer as a guest host, and our regular programming will return with the fall semester. In the meantime, let me make a final plug for the inaugural Evidence Summer Workshop, which will be held at Vanderbilt on May 23rd and 24th. The Summer Workshop is going to be a fantastic opportunity to interact with other evidence scholars, and to discuss a number of excellent new works in progress. More details are available at evidenceworkshop.com. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Megan Cole, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next fall when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.